Okay, so Ruth chapter 2, I'll be uh, preaching and teaching from the ESV. Now, Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him, in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. And he said to the, leaper, to the reapers, the Lord be with you. They answered, the Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, she is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground and said to him, why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me and how you left your father and mother in your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord. For you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers and he passed to her roasted grain. And she ate until she was satisfied and she had, left, and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. And also pull out some from the bundles for her, and leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it up and went into, our, into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, the man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, besides, he said to me, you shall keep close to, by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. 
And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest, and she lived with her mother-in-law. This is word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you that it gives us light and shows us the way that is right, that it's a lamp to our feet and a light into our path. And Father, I ask right now by your spirit, you would give us the gift of illumination to be able to see the truth and beauty of your word. Thank you that your word is without error, that it is all true because it proceeds from the mouth of God, that Holy Spirit inspired men to write these books. And so we come underneath your word and we ask that you would examine our hearts. Show us if there's anything wayward in us. Lord, please begin with us and not uh, first in our minds to think of other people. We desire the work you would do Uh, in us to make us more like Christ. And I ask that you would help me. May the words of my mouth, the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Amen. Well, it was October of 2017, and I was a single man at the time, but I was a single man on the prowl, on the lookout. And you might say it was a similar time to uh, the story of Ruth where barley harvest is starting. Uh, there, was, there was maybe some hope in the air that it might be the start of something good. Uh, you see, there was a young woman who was coming back from Africa uh, to the U.S. And uh, I thought uh, she was really great. I had seen her character and I thought she was uh, Great, I wanted to be able to get to know her better. Uh, her name is Deborah, and she, uh, before she left for Africa where she lived a year, I asked her if I could write her. And so I did. I wrote her a couple of letters, like handwritten, paper, pen, like real letters, postage on the mail. I sent them to Arusha, Tanzania, and, uh, and in response to my two letters, I got Instagram direct messages back. Um, so I didn't really know how to take that. Uh, the words of one of our great poets comes to mind. Uh, so you're telling me there's a chance. Uh, so I, I'm not totally struck down. I think maybe there's, maybe there's a chance here. Uh, and she comes back to the States. And when she's back here, I don't know if anyone in here remembers, uh, a couple of my friends do, but I was giving announcements, and I was announcing, reintroducing her to the church. Deborah's back, and my friends were taking pictures of me at the time and zooming in on my face and drawing hearts and googly eyes all over me. And they're like, bro, you, you were just all googly-eyed and looked so dumb. Uh, so uh, I was looking for a chance to be able to talk to her. What was the deal with the direct messages back? I mean, real paper, but okay. Uh, what's going on here? Is there any hope? And I keep trying to run into her, but she somehow found like secret exits, I guess, from Reality Carpinteria because I never was able to run into her. And weeks are going by and I start 
losing hope. And I'm like, man, I don't know if I'll ever see her. Even one time I was driving with a friend up to Westmont to work out and we see her riding her bike on the side road. And so we double back and we say hi to her. And then we loop around again to like try to talk to her. And she's so focused. She didn't even notice me come back the second time until like she was stopped at a stop sign and I'm yelling at her. Uh, so all of this is happening and, uh, and time's going by. I'm not running into her. I just want to be able to talk to her. And then comes that it's a Friday in late October and it's the end of a week. It's been a long youth week. I'm exhausted. It's the afternoon. Uh, there's a store, there's lessons in here for some of us, but Call of Duty World War II had just come out. And I said, you know what? I'm not going to abide. I'm staying home by myself. I'm playing video games, whatever. Uh, but maybe the spirit of the Lord, maybe uh, ulterior motives provoked me. You know what? I'll just go to abide. I'll just see what happens. And wouldn't you know it, when she wasn't there the weeks before, I walked into the room and there was sitting Deborah. And I walked in and I took my seat. And the rest of the story is for another time. (laughs) But right there, you were feeling it. You were feeling the intrigue. Okay, uh, a woman is sitting here, a man who's interested is coming up. What's going to happen next? That's exactly the situation we have at the beginning of Ruth chapter 2. Ruth chapter 2 verse 1 says this. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. Now this is the first man we're introduced to since Elimelech and his sons, all of whom have died. Think about it. The women have spoken to Ruth and Naomi, but we haven't seen another man appear yet. And here is a man, and not just any man, but a worthy man. And not just a worthy man, but a close relative. And so if you're familiar uh, with the Hebrew culture at this time, maybe some wheels start turning and you think, could this possibly be a redeemer? We see that word pop up at the end of chapter two, and we're going to get way more into uh, the theme of a redeemer and what a kinsman redeemer is. But in short, what it is, is a close relative in Hebrew culture who would take a widow or someone whose husband had passed away, he would marry them and provide for them, protect them, be their redeemer, pay off a debt they had if they were in debt. So Boaz comes into view, and could this be the beginning of hope? We're drawn in as we hear of a man who's a potential suitor, a worthy man. So a man and woman come into view in the story, the next verse Ruth 1, verse 2, is, it says, And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, and then she starts talking to Naomi. She says, okay, I'm going to go reap. I'm going to go glean from the field what I can to take some of the leftover uh, wheat or barley and have that so we can have something to eat. And she just so happens to stumble upon Boaz's field. So a man and woman come into view in the story. And we get insight into what it means as we see the story unfold. We get insight into what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman. Now, at the outset, at the beckoning of the text, teaching us about manhood and womanhood, and in light of the state of our culture's current confusion, I think it'd be good and wise to have a biblical grounding to understand sex and gender. So 
what we're going to do is we're going to walk through what, what does the Bible teach about what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman. And the first question we have to ask is, where do we turn in times of confusion? Should we look back to a quote-unquote quote unquote golden age of the 1950s when everything was better? A kind of nostalgia? Not everything was better in the 50s. Uh, should we go with our feelings of what this feels right to me in the moment? I, this is what I think should we turn back? Should we turn to our own selves? Well, we, as the people of God, we in times of confusion must continually turn to the word of God to correct the ways our thinking has been wrong, to inform us where, with where to take our feelings, and to have our minds renewed. So where are we as a culture? Well, I think the Bible does speak clearly to where we are currently as a culture. And I believe Romans 1 explains and gives us a landscape and a map to understand and get our bearings of where we are at right now, this day and age. So Romans chapter 1, I'm going to read it, and then I'm going to tease out some of the things that we see within it. Romans chapter 1 says this, verses 18 to 27. For the wrath of God, now, Real quick, this is after Paul has said, uh, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God unto salvation to those who believe. Uh, it comes first to the Jews and then the Gentiles, and now he's beginning his long explanation of what the gospel is and how God's righteousness has been revealed to men and women who have sinned against us, which is all of us. And the way he's going to start is by saying, now you need to understand what the situation you're currently in, what you currently are in is. That we are fallen sinful humanity. What does that mean? It means this. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be made known about God is plain to them. Because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking. And their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature, the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason... God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Okay, so what is this saying? This is laying the landscape to understand where we are. And what Romans 1 says is this. 
that we have denied the self-evident truth that foremost, we are creation and God is creator. It is challenging the assumption that we are self-determining, self-existent beings. And Paul says, no, it is self-evident by everything you see in this universe that it has been created by a creator. And therefore, we are dependent on God for our existence. He has ordered and purposed things. And we find out order and purpose from this creator. We are not self-determining beings, but we have been brought into existence by God. And since we have denied one of the basic truths of reality, namely that God is the creator and that there is one creator and that we are his mere creatures, we have denied that basic truth of reality. It has led us to deny other basic truths of reality, namely that God created us male and female. And I would submit to you our culture is now confused to the point that we, because we have denied the creator, do know, we no longer in culture at large know what it means to be a man or know what it means to be a woman. I think that is where we find ourselves in our current cultural landscape. So if that's where we find ourselves, then what did God originally intend? What does the truth of God's word say? God's word teaches us in Genesis 1 through 2 that God created humanity male and female, both together in his image. And his design, get this, his design is for our flourishing, for, for the flourishing of society in this entire universe. That literally when you put a man and a woman together in marriage, when they join together, it leads to new life. Isn't that amazing? That God, by his design, made us for flourishing. And marriage leads to life. Now, I know, I know we have probably some different groups of people in our room right now, okay? Perhaps you're someone uh, who, who is hearing this and saying in your heart, it's a, yes, I know this. I can't believe those people out there who don't understand this, who are proud and gross, and you think of other people as freaks. I, as we're going to talk Seeing this in our culture should, should pull out of our hearts love and empathy and grace because we were once the people who were in the kingdom of darkness. If you are a Christian, your story is that your heart was darkened and God on his own initiative shone the light of Christ into your heart and gave you a new one. And so it should cause us to be humble. Perhaps, perhaps we are in here and we, we love what we have heard about Jesus, but we question these teachings of the Bible. They feel outdated. They don't seem to lead to flourishing. I would challenge you to read through Genesis 1 and 2, to read through the Bible, and at the outset say, whatever I see in here, I believe is God's word, and I will submit to it. Ask the hardest questions you have. God's word can stand up to our questions. Additionally, we, we pastors and ministers on staff, we would love to talk through any questions you might have about it. Uh, Last group of people in here, you may, you may not be a believer. And I would, I would encourage you, I would encourage you also to search the scriptures, to ask if they hold up to the light, to ask the hardest questions you have. And I also want to say, I'm so glad you're here. So 
God's word teaches that God created humanity, male and female. We see basically the biblical sex ethic uh, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, which says this, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. This is the biblical sex ethic, that sex is for a man and a woman in the covenant of one flesh marriage before God. Now, it's interesting that Jesus himself, when questioned on the controversial issue of the day, which was divorce, people said, well, what do you think about divorce? Jesus, in both Mark 10 and Matthew 19, pointed them back and said, have you not heard from the beginning? And then quoted Genesis 2.24. This is where we must go back to. So the truth we see in that is that God has revealed humanity as male and female. And that it means something to be a man, and it means something to be a woman. And we are not completely interchangeable. Men and women are both made in the image of God and therefore equal in worth and value and dignity, and yet we are distinct. We are complementary. And this is good news. A dad is not a mom, and a mom is not a dad, and this is beautiful. A man is not a woman, and a woman is not a man. We can both uniquely image our God through the genders he has given us. And as I said, our culture is confused. We see this by, I I go on all of my favorite websites and the site is decorated in rainbows. We see this in the so-called same-sex marriage in our culture. The New York Times ran an article this week lampooning the idea of gender reveal cake, saying that it's, it's ignorant to, uh, to think or call a baby a boy or a girl based on what its body is like. So our culture is confused, but again, this should draw empathy from us. We must both stand on God's word and God's truth But we also don't take God's word and truth and be militant with it and just try to keep people back and outside. What God has revealed about what it means to be a godly man and a godly woman, it will not just challenge out there, but it will challenge us in here. And it definitely won't start with just changing the culture out there but rather it will start in these walls. Us repenting of the sin we see in ourselves of falling short of what God has called us to be as men and women. Now, this point, perhaps you're wondering, well, what would you do if an LGBTQIA identifying person walked into your office? Well, I think I'd say... Hi, my name's Travis. What's your name? What, what's your story? Can I get you a cup of coffee? I've, I have some great coffee from Sight Glass. Can I, can I make you some? And I get to know them. And I think Russell Moore, Russell Moore draws out what the posture of our hearts and the words of our mouth must be as Christians in light of this issue. All we can do is say what we believe as Christians, that all of us are sinners and that none of us are freaks. 
That's because every person is made in the image of God. We must conclude that all of us are called to repentance. And part of what repentance means is to receive the gender with which God created us. Even when that's difficult, we must affirm that God loves all persons and that the gospel is good news for the repentant prodigal sons and daughters, even for those who have trouble figuring out which is which. He created man and woman to flourish. So let's take a look at a worthy man in Boaz and a woman to be praised in Ruth. And at the outset, I want to point out that much of Christian character is overlap between the genders, that we are going to have distinctive roles, but the character of Christ's likeness is absolutely for us both. So let's look at a worthy man. The first glimpse we get of Boaz is him opening his mouth and talking to his workers at his, in his fields, and he says this, the Lord bless you. The Lord bless you. And what we see in this, he says, the Lord be with you, and they reply, the Lord bless you. What we see in this is that he conducts all manners of his life in a godly way. This isn't a trite saying for the man, kind of like the corny Christian you know who's always blessed. Uh, no, he's, he's conducting all of his life in a godly way. And we need to remember that this is the time of the judges. We so often think of the Bible as uh, 3,000 years ago, that everybody culture was good. Nobody was confused about anything. You read Judges chapter 19, and you see the kind of horrific abuse of women that was going on at the time. You see that people in that society were vulnerable. Men were not being what God had called men to be. Women were being taken advantage of. We see in this time that not everyone is a God-fearer or a worshiper, but here at the outset is a worthy man who conducts all manners of his life in order to glorify God. So we see what a worthy man is in the character of Boaz. So let's talk about some of the things we see in him. Firstly, he protects women. Boaz protects women. Ruth chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter. Do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged young men not to touch you? A worthy man is revealed in how he treats women, which starts with how he views women. It's revealed in Boaz's speech. He calls her daughter. He'll later call her young woman. He does not see her just as an object to be ogled at, but as a creation of God and in familial terms. Titus 2 would instruct us as men to view older women in the church as mothers and younger women as sisters in all purity. That is how we're to relate to one another. And so men, I want to ask you, how do you view women in your thoughts in your internet history, on your Netflix and HBO queue. And sisters, are you holding brothers to this standard? 
you need to hear that you, you must not give away yourself cheaply because you are valuable and made in the image of God. And we need to hold brothers to the standard. If you're dating someone who is not a Christian, who does not exhibit godly character, you're just settling because I guess this is just as good as I can ever do. No, we need to hold brothers to a higher standard, to be the worthy men of God that he has called them to be. And how he views women, which leads to how he protects women. You see in here that he says, uh, daughter, don't go to another field. Stay here. I've charged my men to not lay a hand on you. Godly men protect women. They never raise a hand at them. They never hit them. They do not speak condescendingly to them and make them feel small. But they protect the value and dignity that God has instilled in them. He charges, he says, I've told my men and I'm watching out for you. Don't go somewhere else. Men of this church, are we looking out for the widows, for the single moms in here? Dads, are you watching out for your daughter? Do you know who they're hanging out with? Do the boys in her life know that you're in her life? And that if something happens to her, they're going to have to answer to you. You are their protector. And single brothers, in, in where the situations we place ourselves with someone we're dating, are you being stupid and foolish and going somewhere where you could cause yourself to sin against one of God's daughters? Stop it. You need to repent of that. And in the dating relationship, you should be pursuing clarity of, is this, is this someone whom I would one day want to marry rather than just intimacy? Do I feel close to them? Am I getting what I want out of this? A godly man protects women. Next, he provides. He provides. And notice in the parentheses, not to the neglect of Ruth's industriousness. This is not the idea that she is utterly helpless and without any hope in the world unless a man shows up. But nevertheless, we do see Boaz provide. It's summed up in Ruth 2 verse 9. It says to her, when you're thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. He, he speaks to his men, don't lay a hand against her. He provides water for her. He's going to later on in the chapter provide even more grain. He's looking around and asking, how can I bless this woman? The first question he asks his foreman is, whose woman is this? And what he's saying there is not, uh, where's her man? He should be here. What he's saying is, does she have someone to look out for her? He's looking out for how he can provide for her. Married men. Do you anticipate your wife's needs and lead out to be able to provide? Not perfectly. None of us are going to be able to provide all the love and care that our wives need. They find that in Christ. And yet we're called by God to provide and cherish our wives. Do you know what, if you do or if you get her this small thing, it makes her smile. It makes her day. Are you looking ahead to the future of 
what maybe a dream of hers would be. And you write it down in a notebook. And you say, well, if I, if I put aside some money, it might, it, might take a, it might take a long while. But maybe one day I could do that for her. Are we anticipating her needs? Are we encouraging her with our words? Are we speaking and asking, hey, what's going on? How are you doing? Are we praying with her and for her? Single men, I want to ask, do you, do you lead out in your dorm room, in your apartment, in your home, to make it a place of spiritual nourishment and protection? Do you hold your brothers like, no, you're not, you're not going to have your girlfriend sleep over at our house. That's not going to happen. Do you, do you serve your roommates? You know what will make you a great husband right now, a servant husband right now? Being a servant to your roommates right now. Do you do the dishes? <laughs> do you say, hey guys, let's, let's pray for each other. Let's, let's get involved. Let's know what's going on in each other's lives. Let's confess our sin. Let's, let's, let's confess where we're feeling weak. Let's pray for one another. What would it look like for us husbands or the fathers in this room to maybe start to spiritually lead in the home? I think it's, it starts small and it just starts with a little effort. Okay, you're not going to be a, a giant rock star. You don't need to give an hour-long sermon. I guarantee your wife probably doesn't, I guarantee she doesn't want that. But maybe you get a Bible and you crack it open. And if it's hard to understand, I would commend to you grab an ESV study Bible. And you open up and you read some of those footnotes and you understand what's going on. And hey, let's, before dinner, let's just read a chapter. Let's, let's try to talk about it. We're all going to be challenged in this. And it's not about uh, feeling defeated. We should feel convicted. But then let's, men, we can rise up and be the kind of worthy men by God's spirit that he is calling us to be. Lastly, what I want you to notice is that he does all of this at the outset, not only when he can get something in return. Boaz refers to Ruth as my daughter. That's tipping us off that he is likely older, quite a bit older than Ruth. In the text, we, we think maybe he'll provide for her, but we have these questions. It's not first and foremost just he saw her and she saw him. And what do, you, what do you guys imagine Boaz like in your minds right now? Is he like strong, tall, flowing hair, the tunic with the belt around it? Do you know what he looks like in the text? It doesn't say. It literally says nothing about his appearance. Maybe that should inform some of the ways we think about looking for a potential mate. But he's treating her with dignity and respect, not because one day she might be my wife, but because she is a daughter of God. Single brothers, do you treat all your sisters in purity and honor? Or do you give only special treatment to certain ones? That's not honoring to God. And married brothers, do you still show your wife the kind of cherishing and love scripture commands of you now that you are married. We should continually be showing our wives that we cherish them. Not just when we feel it, but finding ways we can express 
our love to them that they can receive. In Boaz, we have a great example of a worthy man, a man who protects the vulnerable, who provides for a woman in need. And then Ruth comes onto the scene. And let's look at Ruth. Because in Ruth, we see a woman who is to be praised. Now, the first thing we see about Ruth is that she is industrious, which is to say she's hard working. She sets out to go to a field in the, uh, early in the morning to glean, which is hard work in the sun. She came early, she got the go ahead, and then she kept working until evening. Only, it says she only took a short break. She works hard and then goes and she brings Naomi food. This isn't, this isn't some kind of American stereotypical idea of a housewife who has dinner ready and then just sits around for eight hours a day. That's not what scripture calls you women to. She's industrious and hardworking. Secondly, she shows great initiative. This breaks some other stereotypes that some of us have. She's the one who initiated the Hesed kind of love to Naomi. She wasn't waiting around until a man came to serve God. She looked at her circumstances and she asked herself, how can, what can I do now where I am? She said to Naomi, I'll be with you. I'll serve you. I'll follow you wherever you go. I'll even, I'll die where you die. Your God's going to be my God. She says, I'm going to go out to the field. She waits and asks permission to work the field. And she went willing to work. She's exhibiting some of the beautiful traits that we see in Proverbs 31. Now let me, as a quick side note, say, for some reason, Proverbs 31 has fallen on hard times in certain crowds. People kind of lampoon it as, oh gosh, the Proverbs 31 thing, telling women what they should do and what they should be. Now, Scripture is going to call all of us to things that we do not completely attain to. Am I right? Yes, absolutely. But God has provided us in his word a beautiful picture of what it looks like to be a woman who is to be praised. And so we should receive it. And we should take back Proverbs 31 from whoever was trying to take it from us and say, no, that is beautiful. And that's what I'm going to look for. That's what I'm going to try to be. And I'm going to receive it as God's word. That's a side note on Proverbs 31. Uh, What we see in Ruth, fundamentally though, most importantly, at the core, is that she is humble. She's humble. Which is to say she has a right view of herself in relation to others and God. She has a spirit that will not grasp for something that is not hers. She's astonished that she's treated kindly. Now, I, that breaks me because do you know what I'm astonished at? I'm astonished whenever someone disrespects me. I'm like, are you serious? Is this actually happening to me? Actually happening to me right now? Like, do you know who I am? I get surprised when people treat me poorly. I'm like, I'm trying to love you right now, and this is how you're treating me? Ruth, in humility, is astonished at the kindness she's being shown. 
Now, part of this is, is likely her positional vulnerability. But I think, too, what we see in here is a real God-given lowliness. She's even willing to receive something from someone else. She says to Boaz in Ruth 2, verse 10, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? This, this is incredibly countercultural to us, all of us. And her humility reminds us of another woman who Jesus encountered, who was also an outsider. In Matthew 15, a Canaanite woman comes to Jesus asking, her, asking him to heal her daughter, an outsider to the people of God, an enemy historically of the people of Israel. And she says, she says, will you heal my daughter? And Jesus says, and we'll need to understand these words because they're important, but he says, it's not for me to give to dogs what is holy. Now, most likely the word he uses there for dogs is referring to young dogs, referring to puppies, okay? So that feels, especially as Americans, a lot better. Uh, but, but we also have to say, it's not, very, it's not a high view my wife would not be happy if I called her a puppy, necessarily, like referring literally to a puppy. But do you know what her response is? She said, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumb that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, "O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. It's this kind of character, this kind of humility that is the seedbed of all great Christian character. We see in Ruth that humility is the seedbed, the soil for every other aspect of Christian character. Martin Luther, on his deathbed, he uh, took a piece of paper and scribbled some words on it and he stuck it in his pocket. And after he had died, they took they took the piece of paper out of his pocket and they read the sentence that he wrote. He said, we are beggars. This is true. And that quote has been expanded and attributed to Martin Luther to now read, Christianity is one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. This is true Christianity. And the Bible is all the way shot through with humility as a seedbed, the soil for every other good characteristic we might develop. All we can ascertain from the text is that Ruth maybe has heard a few things about God from her husband before he passed away. But then in the text, we see this, that Naomi heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. And so Ruth, all she knows is that the Lord has visited his people, and he gave them food. And so she boldly commits herself to Naomi and to God's people, and she says in her heart, I'm going to go there, and I'm going to see if God might show me kindness, even though I'm an outsider. Boaz, he's seen her great 
faith and as a wealthy person in a place of privilege and power, he doesn't say, well, let me take out my checkbook and see what I can do for you today. What should I put in the memo line? What are you good for? Rather, he says, the Lord bless you. The Lord repay you. He sees all of his resources as gifts from God. He is not a self-made man. There is no such thing as a self-made man. He sees everything he has been given as a gift from God. He is a humble servant of God. Would you desire to be a man or woman of God? Well, don't aim first at all the ways you're just going to be better. But first, humble yourself before God. Isaiah, at the end of his great book, says, who is the one God is going to help? Who is the one God's going to look to? Isaiah 66 says this, but this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Jesus says, the way into the kingdom, you want to know how to come into my kingdom? Are you poor? Do you feel your poverty of spirit? Do you have something to offer me? Because the kingdom is only for the poor in spirit. James says God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Now, how, how are we going to truly become humble? Because all of these things we've said, they're mere platitudes. They're just sayings until we see with the eyes of our heart. And we need to see with the eyes of our heart the Mount Everest of humility. We need to see the character of Christ. Because hearing God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble can at times be like hearing the Grand Canyon is big. Or New Zealand is pretty this time of year. Those are true statements, but once you actually go, you realize those statements do violence to the truth. Because the Grand Canyon makes me feel astonishingly small. Like one misstep, and I don't know if I'll ever hit the ground. In New Zealand, it overloads your heart with beauty. You see, here, everywhere you go on a hike, you hike about five to 10 miles to see a waterfall. And in New Zealand, you're never, you're never going to look around on a hike and not see three or four waterfalls at a given time in a lake over here and fjords just shooting up out of the ground and rolling hills everywhere. And if you want to know humility, look at the Everest of humility in Christ. What Ruth is the beginning sparks of, Christ is the blazing light of. You see, Ruth gave up a chance to find another husband in a familiar area. A great sacrifice. But Christ gave up his heavenly throne to win back the heart of an adulteress. Ruth pledged to go wherever Naomi would go, that Naomi's God would be her God, even to die with her. But Christ came down into our darkness. 
and he promised to make his God our God. And he didn't just die with us, he died for us. Ruth, upon being shown kindness by Boaz, said she didn't deserve this kind of honor. But Christ, the perfect son of God, renounced all rights he had. And he said, give me what they do deserve. Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Would you be a man or woman of God? Humble yourself. Man, this weekend, I got to see some of my own pride well up and shown out. And I saw as I felt disrespected or uh, let down, I saw parts of me say, I can't believe you would treat me like that. I, do you know what I deserve? And it's those moments that we see the pride of our own hearts and the real offenses that other people bring against us that push us, that push us into the cross of Christ and allow us to see the kind of grace God has actually shown us. What's humility going to look like? Well, it's going to look like a willingness to admit that we need help. A willingness to go get prayer, to stop saying, I've got it under control. You don't have it under control. You've been saying that a thousand times. This next time isn't going to be different if you repeat all the same steps as before. What's that quote? Insanity's doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. We need to confess our sins to one another because we're not strong enough on our own because we need help from one another. We need prayer from one another. Humility is going to look like worshiping God because he's worthy. It's not so much that his feelings are hurt when we don't worship him as we're foolish. He is the immortal, eternal God. Humility is going to look like a willingness to submit to all of what God's word says. The things spoken today aren't popular, whether it's gender or humility or the necessity of repentance. But study over God's word. Don't blindly accept it, but when you do understand it, 
Humble your own mind to the mind of God. Humility will look like men humbly, sacrificially leading to serve, protect, and provide for women. And it will look like women humbly working hard with initiative and receiving. And all of us, it will look like all of us being together for the gospel. You know what else humility will look like? It will look like contentment and gratitude and joy. There's, um, in the midst of all my own pride uh, and mulling over, I can't believe it. You know, you have your own stuff. But uh, thinking over all those things, I, of course, thought of the sermon that I was preparing for this week and what a humble person I am not. Uh, And in the midst of that, I thought of a pastor whom I love and something that he says that he's old and bald, and so he can say it, but if I said it, it would be weird and corny, but he says, and it's beautiful. And when people give the question that everyone always gives, hey, how are you doing? He genuinely looks at them and stares into their eyes, tells them, better than I deserve. Because you see, when we humble ourselves before God, we realize that we are mere creatures and not just that, but we have sinned against God. And he has treated us better than we ever deserved. And that frees us up to not need to be our own saviors, but to rest in what he has done. That frees us up to say, yeah, my own wisdom is pretty lacking. It frees us up to have joy and gratitude and contentment where we are. Because humility is recognizing that we have received better than we deserve. Let's pray. Lord, I ask for that kind of spirit, raw humility in the hearts of men and women in this church. And I ask from that seedbed, you would make us godly men and women who love the world outside of us, even when they don't understand us. That our love would be compelling and that even when we're cursed, we would bless and return. Lord, I ask that You would meet with your people now and provide what they need for the men who have fallen short. Would they trust in the only worthy man, Christ? For women where they have fallen short, would they trust in the only worthy man, Christ? Lord, would you move among us, compel us by your spirit to be contrite in heart and humble and tremble at your word. Pray this song in Christ's name. Amen.